Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'd like to welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Cami Ostman. Cami grew up in a chaotic family and the craziness of her childhood drove her to look for solidity and structure outside of her family, which she did indeed at first find in fundamentalist religion. But religion was once a place of structure and safety, proved to be a patriarchal institution that led her to a dutiful marriage and ultimately left her more unsure of who she was and what she believed. In an attempt to answer her questions, she went to graduate school and became a psychotherapist. Through working with her clients and holding their grief and their stories with deep respect, she eventually began to ask herself some of the most difficult questions of her own life. What did she want? Who was she as a woman? What was she allowed as a woman to want? Who could she be were she free from the structure of her religious beliefs? The collision of personal and professional journeys culminated in a divorce and the discovery of running that long distances could serve her as a learning tool. Cami now uses her therapeutic skills and her lessons that she's learned through running long distances to work with many populations of people for healing and for growth, whether that was through therapy or through writing. Cami is the founder of The Narrative Project, a program that supports writers in getting their books done. She's the author of the memoir, Second Wind, One Woman's Midlife Quest to Run Seven Marathons on Seven Continents. And she's the co-editor of several anthologies, including Beyond Belief, The Secret Lives of Women in Extreme Religion. Cami Osman, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. I'm happy to have you here today. Thank you so much, Betsy. It's just really a privilege to be here with you. So, Cami, I'm going to confess to you right up front. I wouldn't run to my own mailbox, so I'm not a runner. <laughs> and your story, Second Wind, is about how you, what you've learned in the process of distance running. But my assumption is that you're finding those lessons could apply to us somewhat less athletic folks as well. What caused you to write Second Wind and, and what was the lesson that you wanted to teach with it? Right. Uh, yes, of course. Um, and, you know, I, I like to hasten to say before anybody is terribly impressed that I've run a marathon on every continent, that I am a back of the packer. I have come in dead last when the finish line has already been taken down. So, um, yes, I'm running, but um, I like to say that anything worth doing is worth doing badly. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's actually a quote from G.K. Chesterton. 
Well, what inspired me to, to write the book was that once I started on the path to running long distances, I realized that being out there on the, on the road or on the trail for long periods of time was completely changing me and turning me into a strong woman when I had previously felt I wanted to be a strong woman, but I, I was not. Um, I was really letting other people tell me what to do. And out there on the trail by myself, I was realizing, oh, I'm just here with me. And I wanted other people to, I wanted other women in particular to be able to know they could trust themselves and that they didn't have to be perfect. So do you think it, for in distance running, do you think it's the solitude that brought you the insights that you were gaining or the running itself? Or what, what do you think that is? Yeah, I think it's a little of both. I think when you're out there on the trail for a long period of time and you push a little beyond what you think you can actually do, there's something about that. There's something about your doing it with your body, but I think it's true with anything, you know, knitting a complete sweater when you never thought you could. I mean, there's lots of ways you can push yourself beyond what you think you can actually do. So there's something about that that allows you to know, oh, I'm bigger, I'm wider, I'm, I'm more expansive than I ever imagined I could be. And that's a pretty amazing, you know, revelation. And to do that again and again, I mean, every time I push myself it's, it's like, oh, geez, I forgot I could do this. You know, we, we forget how brilliant we are, how, how big and expansive we can be. Um, but the solitude is, you make a really good point. The solitude is an important part of it. When you're out there alone, just absolutely alone, and you've got nothing but your own thoughts, there you come into contact with your shadow. You know, I've had a lot of people say kind of jokingly, what are you running away from? And I always laugh and say, oh, you don't run away from yourself when you're out there for two, three, four, five hours. You don't. You run into yourself. What, what do you mean by that? You, you run into yourself? You do. You really, you know, I, I was just out for a two-hour run yesterday. And, you know, I got out. I, I always run five miles in one direction when I'm running a 10-mile run these days. And so that I have to run five miles back, you know. Uh, so that it's, I, I'm going to definitely get the, get the 10 miles in. And I was out there and I, I was, we were snowed in over the weekend up here in Seattle where I live. And I was really just thinking how trapped I had felt. And then I'm out there with myself and I was thinking, why am I trapped with my own company? You know, you could kind of get the questions that you don't ask yourself when you're distracting yourself with your phone or your television or, um, or phone calls and I'm asking myself those questions and the beat of the sound of my feet on the ground allows this sort of meditative energy for me to examine some of the questions that I might never ask myself in, in a distracted state. So you really run into hmm. kind of a calm, empty space sometimes. You know, and again, this is a, this is coming from a non-runner question, but, yeah. but it makes me wonder as you're listening to the beat of your own steps mm -hmm. of your own running gait, it almost makes me think of either a, like a metronome or a, a hypnotic kind of quality. Is, is there that experience in that for you? Oh, totally. I mean, if I don't have any music or anything to listen to, and I'm only listening to the beat of my feet, I actually count 
I mean, I sometimes count, you know, up to a hundred or I count backwards from a hundred or I say the alphabet in my head. I mean, when you're out there for a lot of hours alone, you dig deeper than your boredom, you know? Mm. So yes, I, I'm not a musician, but I would imagine the metronome is very similar, you know, it kind of gets into your body, doesn't it? Well, there's a, I'm thinking more of mantras and chants mm -hmm. and things that yep. people do to sort of absent their mind of too much chatter yes. to kind of get clear or to be fully present in a physical way and detached from the distracting thoughts of everyday ruminations, right? Yes. So it sounds like there's almost a trance-like quality to it. Is that overstating it? No, I don't think it's overstating it. You know, I mean, every runner is going to have her own experience, but for me, there is a trance-like uh, trance quality, particularly on trail running, because with trail running, you're, you're in the woods and you're hopping over roots and rocks and uh, you're watching where every footfall goes. And so you, it, it, running on a street, you can easily get off to thinking about, oh, am I going to balance my budget this month? You know, you can start to think about all kinds of things that you might normally perseverate about. But when you're trail running, you really can't, you can't get off onto a thought. I was out on a trail a few weeks ago and I was doing great, like just paying attention to where every footfall went, completely empty mind focused entirely on the present moment. And then I had this thought, Hey, this is great. I haven't even fallen in a really long time because it's been like, you know, months since I fell <laughs> doing a trail run and I got off this hill onto this flat spot and boom, I went down <laughs> sort of like the minute I let myself think about how well I was doing. As opposed to being present in the doing well of it. Yes, exactly. Being just absolutely present. The moment that I gave myself some some kudos and got my thought off onto, look at you, you're a trail runner. My little ego came up and then, you know, the, the trail was like, mm -mm, we're taking you down, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, there's something kind of comedic about it, of course. Totally. But at the same time, it also makes me think of how many times we need present moment awareness that yes. that complete it and it's it's harder than ever for me in my lifetime it's harder than ever to achieve it yes because we have phones that beep and buzz and things that go and we we could always be elsewhere even it's one thing to be elsewhere in the physical presence of another person but here we are in a virtual environment right so it's not even my molecules. It's it's the digitized version of me that is all over, right? And mm -hmm. and the digitized versions of everyone else. It seems like it's a really hard thing to get back to the physical present body awareness that you talk about. Yes. And I think that that is what really changed me, um, really, really shifted. You know, I've always been, as a lot of women are, a people pleaser, you know, someone who who watched the faces of the people around me to see if I was doing the right thing. And particularly once I was engaged in, um, in a particular church environment that had a lot of rules and guidelines for what a woman should be and shouldn't be and when she should talk and when she shouldn't talk. And, you know, w with running, you really can't, you really cannot do a long distance run to please anybody else because it, it makes you dig so deep physically and emotionally and mentally you have to be present with yourself. And, you know, sometimes that, that presence is quite a struggle. I mean, 
I've had runs where I've been self-critical the whole time, but if you run long enough, you'll run through that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is not just true for running. I, I think it's true for all kinds of things. Meditating probably being, you know, I don't do a lot of sitting meditation, but I know a lot of people who do. And I think that they've described that experience of you sit through all of the thoughts and come back to the breath and come back to the breath. You do that in running, you come back to your breath. I mean, I often count my breath too, in, 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 out, 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 in, 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 out, out, out. Well, and in running, while, while in still meditations, we might be able to get away with not breathing properly. That would just maybe perhaps mean that our meditation wouldn't go as deep. Mm-hmm. But in running, if you're not breathing properly, you're not going to be able to make it, right? That, that, no. Or at least not with oxygenated muscles and, <laughs> and organs and all of that. Yeah. You can have a really bad run if you're, if you're not breathing very deeply. When I when I run, when I'm really anxious, um, and my breathing is shallow. I mean, a few years ago, my, both of my grandparents passed away pretty, pretty close together. And, um, you know, I've maintained a practice of running a minimum practice of running, no matter what's going on in my life for many years, for a couple of decades. But when they both passed away and they were like parents to me because, you know, my own parents were teenagers when I was born. So it was really like this team effort to raise me. And, um, I, they lived a long time and, um, but I was very devastated at their loss and I would go out to run and get, you know, maybe a mile into my run and find that, um, I had to stop. I had to walk because I had to cry and I couldn't, I couldn't cry and run. Can't cry and run? Not then. I mean, I have done it sure many times, but not then, not with that grief. Hmm. So let me go back a little bit, sure, Cami. Prior to you'd always run to some degree, but but prior, when when you left your family of origin, the kind of chaotic, dysfunctional stuff that was going on in your family of origin, like you said, teenage parents, they had their own struggles. I'm gathering, yes, that you looked for structure and found it in what we'd call an organized fundamentalist faith. Right. Can you say a bit about what drew you to that? And then what, when did that, when did the, the structure of that start to feel less like structure and more like a cage, or at least that's what I'm gleaning from your story? Yeah. Right. Well, um, so I entered into the, the faith that I was a part of when I was about 14 while I was still at home. And, um, I have to say, I still believe to this day that, that joining the joining the religious um, community that I joined probably saved me from a lot of things. And the people inside of that community were absolutely loving for the most part. I mean, you don't, you know, you find icky people everywhere, but um, they were, they were loving. They surrounded me. They picked me up for church. They, um, they were tremendously kind and became a surrogate family for me. And, um, I went to a few different churches of kind of the same genre for, um, for 20 years. Um, but inside of the doctrine was, was a lot of, um, rules and guidelines for women and that women shouldn't speak in church. Um, a lot of, uh, judgment about 
how one dresses, about the role of a wife inside of a marriage, and a, and also a lot of judgment required about people who lived different kinds of lifestyles, and then uh, pressure to um, evangelize and to bring other people into our way of thinking. And those things felt really burdensome for me. I worried a lot um, about the fact that I didn't feel like I fit in and that I did, I couldn't honestly say that I believed that I should keep my mouth shut. Um, you know, and, and slowly, you know, as I grew up and, and, you know, became 30, 32, 33 years old, I felt like I really wanted to live into my potential, wanted to leave a legacy, but you, it's hard to do if you're silenced. And so when I went to graduate school, which ironically was, you know, a religious school that I went to, I started to, you know, they kind of asked us, what's your personal epistemology? I mean, it was very heady, you know, and I really started to think, why do I believe the things that I believe? And I unpacked my dogma very slowly. Um, but as I did, I found some freedom. It's okay if I don't believe what you believe. I can step into what feels more natural to me instead of what I'm being told. But, you know, of course, there's tremendous loss because I never didn't love the people that I was a part of, but I, I lost the belief. Mm. I, I, I didn't believe it anymore. And it would be dishonest for me to stay in the community um, if I didn't believe the doctrine. So it was, it was the doctrine of patriarchy, it sounds, that that was particularly troubling to you, that yeah. how that, that particular religious organization viewed women, their role, their power, all of that, their authority over them, their bodies, their authority over sexuality. Their sovereignty. The lack of sovereignty over one's body. Right. And, and one's life choices. And, um, you know, and there were a lot of kind of inside of the lovingness, there were a lot of social structures inside of the church to keep us in line and um, lovingly, but nonetheless, keep us in line. And I don't really want to be in line. I actually want to just be free. I want to follow my own, <laughs> you know, I don't really want to be in line. <laughs> well, it sounds like it was costing you a lot to be in line. What, what do you think it was costing you? I think it was costing me my voice and my sense of myself as a strong person, um, my efficacy in the world. I don't think I could be running the business that I'm running now if I, if I had stayed. I don't think that I could have the friends uh, that I have now, people whose uh, ways of thinking about the world are vastly different than mine. I really value, really value diversity and difference of thinking and even being challenged and even sort of being struck with like, oh my God, I never thought of that. And um, I might've been wrong about that all my life. You know, I mean, I kind of love those experiences mm. rather than the sense that I'm supposed to know the truth and I'm always supposed to be holding the truth and telling it to other people, you know, and undoubting, right? Sure of it. Yes. And sure of it. Yes. Undoubting doubt is sort of an interesting, which is, which coming back to running is something that you do a lot when you're out for a very long run. Like when you're running a marathon and you hit mile 17, you are suddenly flooded with self doubt. Why the hell am I doing this? Can I finish the last 9.2 miles. Can I, 
you know, uh, is this even an important thing to do? Who cares that I'm doing it? You know, you're flooded with self-doubt and pushing through all of that and coming to the other side of it is actually a very powerful experience. Yeah, let's linger there because I think that lots of endeavors, I know that I'm in the middle of writing a novel right now. And let me tell you, this novel is bucking me like a Bronco. I mean, it is just really, this one's hard. I'm really struggling with it. And it's, I can't tell you how plagued I have been with, oh, who cares about this anyway? People don't really read books anymore. They're all just watching the internet. You know, it's going to cost a fortune to promote it. I can talk myself out of the value of it so easily. Yes. And what you're saying is that in the running process, that same thing happened. Why am I doing this anyway? Who cares? You know, those, you know, what difference does it make? This hurts. It's why don't I, you know, and I was thinking, gosh, there are a lot of more fun ways to spend my time than wrestling this Bronco of an owl. You know, I, I can talk myself out of not only the value of it, but talk myself into the reward of not doing it. And it sounds like that same thing happens for you on the trail. So how do you get to the other side? How come you don't just stop at the four mile thing and just say, screw it, I'm going home. Why run the extra one when it means you've got another five to go? I know, right? Um, yeah, one wonders that sometimes. But but you know, here's the thing, and I'm glad that you're bringing it into an analogy with with writing because um, because I believe they're very similar. You know, and when I when I designed the narrative project to support writers getting their books done. That how that came about is that my friend who is a fellow runner was sitting on my couch with me and she said, if you know how to train for a marathon you and you use those same skills to write your book, you know how to help writers get their books done. I think it is very parallel. The thing with running that I've always done is I've created a sense of support and accountability around it. So if I'm going to train for a marathon, the first thing I do is I don't just go out and run um, 20 miles for the heck of it. I sign up for a marathon. So I put some money and some commitment in the game. And then I start telling people that I'm going to do it. And then I ask people to come along with me to the event. And I start to create this sort of structure around the final event or the final product. And I realize that if I bow out of that, there's going to, I'm going to have to report that to a whole bunch of people. You know, I can, I can do that. So you've created a system of accountability. I do. I create a system of accountability. And then when possible, I bring people along on those long runs or portions of those long runs. You know, not everybody wants to do 20, but somebody might want to do one with me. So, you know, until I have built the muscle of being able to do it for its own intrinsic value. And that actually took quite a while with running. I mean, it probably took two or three years before um, before I felt like I was running purely for the intrinsic value of it. And it was a total habit, but I think it's the same with writing a book. I think that you create accountability and support. And in, with my writers that I work with, we go back regularly to this question of why do I need to write this book? What am I taking a stand for? So, you know, I know now with my running at this point that if I train for a long distance run, I am taking a stand for my strength as a woman. I know that now. I have no question in my mind that at the end of that finish line, I will know something about myself that I didn't know at the beginning, and it helps me grow. And the same thing with, with writing a book. You've got to ask yourself over and over again, what is what am I taking a stand for here? Because whether it's a novel or it's a memoir or it's a piece of poetry or a book of poetry, 
there's something you're examining, there's something you're working with, an idea that you want to come to the other side of. And you have to articulate that over and over and over again so that you embed the value of that in your very being. Hmm. And then that support and accountability is just super crucial, you know. Okay, so let me, I want to shift to the subtitle of your book, yeah, which is A Woman's Midlife Quest to Run Seven Marathons on Seven Continents. Yeah. Now, of course, everyone everyone has probably said, really, all seven? Really? All of them? Even that seventh one? Yep. So I assume by the title and by the reading of the book that I've done that you did indeed make this goal. But tell me where the goal started. Why seven marathons on seven continents. How did that happen? And what does that mean to you? Right. Well, I think since I was very young and and partly kind of in the, with the intent of being a missionary one day after I joined the church, I had a great fascination with travel and travel itself is something that turns your worldview upside down. And as I said, I really love that experience of, oh, I had never thought about this. This other thing could be true. And so I had already done some amount of travel. I'd already been to Europe and the Caribbean and Asia and Africa by the time I'd been done quite a bit of traveling. So when I ran my first marathon, it was actually in Prague and I trained for it and ran it in Prague, um, spurred on by a friend, the friend I wrote about in the book. Um, who later became my husband and later became my ex-husband. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so he challenged me to train for the full marathon uh, because when he was going through his divorce, he trained for a marathon and he had this, like I've been describing this experience of pushing yourself physically, helping you manage your grief. So I, I believed that that was probably true, but the full marathon seemed very daunting to me. But when he threw in that, well, we could do it in Prague, I was like, yeah, I'll do anything to travel. So, um, so I trained for the marathon and bought my, so that was your carrot. Yeah. It was my (laughs) carrot to go, to go to Prague and, and did that marathon. And then, um, you know, while I was there, he sort of jokingly said, well, well now you can do a marathon back home and then you can hit every continent if you want to. And this light bulb went on over my head and I just said, yes, not only do I want to not only do I want to go to every continent, I've always wanted to do that, but I want to actually run this distance on every continent. And I want to see what it's like to go to these races where you can't speak the language, navigate the, I mean, navigating the starting line in Prague was kind of a mess. Um, we actually missed the start, the start time. And, um, you know, I just thought that's good for you. That's, that's good for you to have to figure things out and, navigate the cultural differences. And it was very cool to see how the, the Japanese run a Ameri- uh, uh, direct, let's say that direct a marathon very differently than, than it was directed in South Africa, than it was directed in Panama or Rio. So, I mean, it, it, it really was a tremendous experience to go to all of these different places and run with people who had different attitudes, but we're all still doing that 26.2 distance. So that's sort of how it came about. Hmm. 
and you're sort of unified with people that are putting one foot in front of the other doing the same thing. So of course I have to ask about Antarctica. How did you run a, a who would have even thought you could run a marathon in Antarctica? Right. How does that work? Well, there are a couple of marathons, official marathons in Antarctica. There's one that's really right at the South Pole, which is quite expensive to join. And there's one that uh, this marathon company directs on the peninsula off of the peninsula of Antarctica as it as it scoops its way up to South America. Um, I was on the list to get into that marathon, but I couldn't get into it. And by the time it was time to run the marathon in, in Antarctica, I actually had a book deal for second wind. I pitched it on proposal and it was accepted and um, purchased by seal press. So now I had not just a desire to go to Antarctica and run a marathon, but I actually had an obligation to do it. And I couldn't get in officially to the, either of the marathons. And so I really had to get creative in how I did that. I don't want to give it away too much. I want people to read the book, but I'll give you a little snippet. Okay. Yeah. So suffice it to say you had to find a creative way, but you did indeed run in Antarctica. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's a good way to say I did find a creative way to do it. Well, Cami, it's a delight to talk to you as I, as I am reading your book, I'm thinking of two other books in my mind. And one is of course, Cheryl Strayed's Wild, where you know, it's ostensibly a story about a woman hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, but it's really about a woman coming to terms with her grief while while walking. And I'm thinking about the formerly lauded and later defamed Lance Armstrong's book, It's Not About the Bike. Yes. Because to me, it sounds like what you're saying is, yes, for you, Running has been the vehicle of sorting out, of figuring out who you are, of meditating, of finding your strengths, of coming to your own conclusions, running into yourself, but that others can do this in their own ways. Oh, yes, Betsy. I mean, I really believe that it doesn't have to be running. I mean, I know friends who participate in yoga. I've talked to people who their book, when they've completed their book, it had that experience for them of really finding their voice. Many people who find their voice through writing their book, you know, sometimes it's been hiking the Pacific Crest Trail or, I mean, frankly, raising children, you know, is a pretty long marathon, right? <laughs> yeah. That's the marathon that doesn't ever have a, an end point though. If you're, right. if you're really lucky and you outlive your children, right. you're never, you never stop parenting them. Right. Well, Cami, I, I know that folks can find out more by going to the narrative project.com. Is that, am I saying the website correctly? Yeah, it's actually .net, the narrative project.net. Yeah. The narrative project.net. So any of you that might be listening that are interested in having some I think of it as an ectoskeleton, an outer skeleton to kind of help you, brace you uh, for your writing process. This is a nine-month process uh, and a community support as well as tactical, practical kinds of things as well. So thenarrativeproject.net, Cami's book, Second Wind, One Woman's Midlife Quest to Run Seven Marathons on Seven Continents. Cami, Thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. I sure appreciate having you. My privilege. Thanks, Betsy. 
As I reflect on my conversation with Cami Ostman, I'm struck with a few things. You know, it, it, it'd be easy to listen to her story of being a runner and to think, oh, well, you know, I'm not a runner. That doesn't apply to me. Or I am a runner, so therefore it does. But everything that I've learned on the Morning Glory Project and listening to now 55-some stories of how people get through what they get through, it's that whatever method they used, they gathered some tools that are available to any of us who use whatever method, whether you're a runner or not, whether you're a writer or not, whether you're an activist or a politician or a musician or not. We can have ways that we learn from others pursuing their best selves. I've been listening to a masterclass by Alicia Keys recently, and she's a musician and she's a songwriter and she's an accomplished Grammy winner. I, I'm none of those things, but her words were nonetheless really inspiring to me about how she goes about creating what she faces, how she manages to get there. And I wrote down a quote that she said, she said, only you have what you can bring. Literally, nobody has it. No one. So there's a kind of beautiful strength and confidence that comes when you realize that you're the only one who's got what you've got. Now, she learned that through songwriting. But that's a message for all of us. So when I listen to Cami Ostman's story and I'm reading her book, Second Wind, I'm gathering the nuggets. <laughs> I'm gathering how, what did she learn? How did she get through what she got through? And for Cami, it was about learning to hear her own voice. That seems to be one of the big things that she learned on the trail was learning to listen and hear and value and honor her own voice. And for her, it takes running on a trail for many miles and many hours to get there. For Alicia Keys, it takes grappling with a melody and a thought and an idea and a lyric to try to come up with a song that says what she's trying to say. For me, it's writing a book that's struggling through it. What is it for you? What is your marathon? What is your novel? What is your music? And how do you find your voice? That's the question. And that's a pretty good extra bloom, if you ask me. Thanks so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. I hope that you, wherever you are, whomever you're with, that you're finding your own way to bloom. <laughs>